2 Samuel 18. And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth the people, a third part under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people said, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou be ready to succor us out of the city. And, and the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. We've been looking the last couple of weeks at the providence of God in the life of David. And we looked at the fact of the providence in a number of ways. And then last week we, we looked at the issue of providence and prayer. And this week we're considering what I'm calling providence and responsibility or providence and participation. We remember last week we read Psalm 3, which was a psalm of David, we're told, under inspiration. But David prayed in that psalm. And it's not difficult to imagine, at least, that he prayed at the very time of this circumstance praying as he takes this rest and relaxation at Mahanium, that he cries in this prayer in Psalm 3, and in particular in the last couple of verses, where he cries unto God in his need, Arise, O Jehovah, save me, O my God, and so on. But he's crying unto God for that help, recognizing, as he does, his absolute need of God's help, of God's grace, of God's wisdom. And he trusts implicitly on that grace and wisdom and power and promise. Yet, yet, David also prepares. He's trusting God and yet he's preparing. He's numbering the people. He's dividing them in threes. He's making battle plans. David prepares. He doesn't simply cry unto God and leave it there, but he prepares. He goes about doing what is necessary and trusting that God has given him not only the people, but given him understanding, given him the abilities and the gifts that we have recognized since his anointing in 1 Samuel 16 at the hand of Samuel. David here, I'm asserting, does not turn God's gracious promises into any kind of a warrant for him to do nothing. Because he knows that God is a shield about him as well as the lifter up of his head. He doesn't just sit on his hands. He doesn't make that an excuse for doing nothing. There is such a thing as responsibility, a 
among the people of God, of course. And there is no merit attached to the things that they do. It is that which God has given his people to do, that which he has enabled them to do, that which he provides for them to do in his providence. They are to do these things and not to simply sit on their hands. And yet there is no merit to these things. There's no merit accruing to David for doing these things. And yet he does them in the strength and the power and the wisdom of God, but he does them. David has not forgotten his military prowess because God has not forgotten him. God in mercy has not removed from his anointed the gifts with which he endowed him in the past when the Spirit was given him upon his anointing, as I said by Samuel. God's covenant promises to David, God's covenant promises to his people, God's covenant promises to us, all his promises are yea and amen in Christ. He has given them to us. And they continue in truth. The gift of faith does not preclude one from employing skills and common sense. And yet we know, through the gift of faith, we know, through the study of the scriptures and the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit, we know that we cannot do these things apart from Christ, apart from our Father in heaven. And yet God has given us these things. And the gift of faith doesn't preclude us from employing those skills, those gifts that God has given us, even common sense, as I said. In fact, I would assert that faith insists that we use them. Faith insists that we use the gifts and the talents, the abilities that we have been given by God. Faith insists that we use those things knowing through that faith that they have been gifted us by our Father in heaven, by God himself. And this brings together, does it not, the spirit of prayer and the spirit of action. The spirit of prayer and the spirit of action. David prayed and then he set himself about doing what was before him, what needed to be done. Thomas Watson has said, faith, though it hath sometimes a trembling hand, it must not have a withered hand, but must stretch. Sometimes it has a trembling hand, but it must not have a withered hand, but must stretch. I would be virtually certain that Thomas Watson when he wrote those words, had in his mind a picture from Mark 3 or from the parallel account in Matthew of Christ in the synagogue and the man with the withered hand. You remember that man with the withered hand? And the Pharisees, those foolish men, asked Christ if he was going to perform a healing, if he was going to heal on the Sabbath day. They would consider that a violation of the Sabbath day. And he looked, Mark tells us, he looked about them in anger. And here's this man with this withered hand. And Christ says to the man, stretch forth thy hand. How can he do that? It's withered. But he has the command of God himself in the person 
of Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, directing him to stretch forth his hand. So we're told simply that he stretched it forth. At the same time, Christ commanded, Christ gave him the power to do that. He stretched forth that withered hand. Well, we can easily imagine, can we not, David saying in his heart at this time in Mahanaim, saying in his heart what he had said years before to the Philistine giant. He could be saying these things in his heart to these masses that were accumulating to fight against him, led by his very own son, Absalom. We can imagine him saying, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to thee in the name of Jehovah of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. He comes in the name of God. David prayed his prayer, but he did not then, sitting around waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to perform a miracle. He knew it was up to him to do something, again, in the strength of God, in the strength of his Father in heaven. God mobilized his faith to pray that prayer. God mobilized his faith to set himself forward to the task that he knew he must accomplish with the skills and the wisdom and the training that God himself had given him. And so, as God mobilized his faith, so David mobilizes his forces, dividing them into three companies, setting over each company a trusted general, Joab and Abishai, his nephews, and Ittai, the faithful Gittite. He sets them over. We learn from this, I believe, that we are to watch and pray. We are not only to pray, but to watch and to do. We are not only to watch and do, but we are to pray. God joins these things together. We're not to be hearers only, but doers. And we could say, if, by, if this doesn't sound irreverent, that we're not to be prayers only, but doers of the word that God has given us and the tasks that he has set before us. This would be, even as James says in his epistle, this would be deluding our own selves to think that we are not to be doers. There's no license given in Scripture for complacency. None whatever. We are to be about our Father's business. There's a well-authenticated anecdote of Oliver Cromwell, the protector, as he was called, in England during those days when he was not on the throne but he was ruling as the protector after he had taken off the head of the king, Charles I. But he was attacking Ireland. And this anecdote is told that on this occasion when his troops were just about to cross the river to attack the enemy in Ireland, he set forth an address. He spoke to them, but he concluded that address with these words. Put your trust in God, but mind to keep your powder dry. Put your trust in God, but mind to keep your powder dry. I believe that that, even though spoken by a man, even though spoken by Cromwell, I, I think it parallels much biblical truth and we could look at, for example, Psalm 144. You think this is terrible. 
advocating that God is interested in warfare and so on. A Psalm of David, 144. Behold, or blessed be Jehovah my rock, he says, who teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdueth my people under me. Crying unto God again, but here praising him for these things. But listen to how, how he refers to his God. My loving kindness, my rock, my fortress. He personalizes this. He takes it to himself. God is his high tower. God is his deliverer. God is his shield. It's through God that the people will be subdued under me. One man wrote a, a poem about this matter with Cromwell. And he put it this way. He wrote, The power that led his chosen by pillared cloud and flame through parted sea and desert waste, that power is still the same. He fails not. He, the loyal hearts that firm on him rely. So put your trust in God, my boys, and keep your powder dry. Trust in God and fight the good fight. Trust in God, but do these other things even to the perhaps insignificant task of keeping your powder dry. David had prayed, but that does not allow for inactivity on his part, as I've already said and tried to get across. He has placed before God all his needs, all his desires, yet the Lord does not expect him to be passive or inert he does not expect him, David, to sit on his hands doing nothing. Perhaps this is where Thomas Jonathan Jackson got his statement, do your duty and leave the consequences to God. Do your duty and leave the consequences to God. It's the same concept, the same idea. You may know Thomas Jonathan Jackson better by the nickname Stonewall. Do your duty and leave the consequences to God. Be still and know that I am God. We looked at briefly last time. Be still and know that I am God. But I don't believe that that means to sit still. I don't believe that that means to be inactive. I don't believe that that means literally to do nothing. It probably refers to the believer's troubled heart and David's troubled heart over absolute. Absalom's rebellion here. Absalom's evident hatred of his own father. Remember, rather, that God is our refuge and our strength. David would be calling this psalm to his mind, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth do change. Look how the earth changed before David. How his own son changed before him. And though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof, be still and know that I am God. But as I've just indicated, that I am your God, David. 
that I am your God, my people, and that we can call out with David, my God, my rock, my high tower, my refuge, my strength, my fortress, our God. Jonathan Edwards said it rather tersely when he said, be still, be still as to the inward frame of our hearts. Cultivating a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign pleasure of God. The sovereign pleasure of God. God's providence. His sovereign pleasure. Be still toward that. Cultivate this calm and quiet submission. Whatever my God may do is right. It is right. And it is good. And it is proper. David and we might well remind ourselves of Aaron's behavior in Leviticus 10. You remember how that God slew his, two of his sons who were priests. He slew Hophni and Phinehas because they brought strange fire to the altar. He slew them, consumed them with fire from heaven. What do we read about Aaron's reaction? Their father Aaron were told he held his peace. He held his peace. That's what we are called to do on so many occasions when the, when the word tells us or God tells us, be still. Don't agitate yourself. Don't get all upset or excited. Be still as you trust in me. Be still and know that I am God. There is a popular phrase among men, unfortunate in that it contains certain truth, but twist it. Or at least people twist it to themselves. But the popular phrase, God helps those that help themselves. There is some truth to that, is there not? And yet people have corrupted it to mean what God or what the coiner of this phrase intended even probably. In fact, this phrase, God helps those that help themselves, topped a pole taken by George Barna, that Barna Research Place. It topped a poll taken of the most widely known Bible verses. It isn't a Bible verse. You can sit all day before Bible Gateway and you're not going to find it on any translation. And when some were asked, you know, one of those men on the street things where the inquisitor asked people, when people on the sidewalk were asked, to name one of the Ten Commandments. This was the most common response. That's sad. But this waiting upon God, this trusting in God, this being still and knowing that God is God, is not, we're not to allow that to lead to fatalism, which would amount and lead us to be sitting on our hands. I can't stand this popular response you hear so often when somebody is told something, well, whatever, I hate that. Do you understand what that is saying? Well, whatever, that's fatalism. And it's not acceptable. I'm not saying that you're gonna be punished for saying that. I'm just saying that I don't like it and it's not really correct to say. We get overrun with common phrases, even phrases like, God helps those that help themselves. Whatever. 
Let us not allow this to lead to fatalism. Fatalism in itself is a teaching that all things are predetermined and therefore happen regardless of one's efforts. Sounds like providence, doesn't it? Submission to events is unavoidable. Of course all things are predetermined. Of course they are going to happen because they have been ordained by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God as we looked at last time. But does that mean we are to do nothing? That's what fatalism is, doing nothing. Just saying, oh well, or whatever, and doing nothing. It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And not caring. This is not the teaching of God's word for us. Are we to submit to events unavoidable? To be do-nothings? It reminded me of, of that phrase in Romans 9. Those Paul extolling grace. And, and then he speaks about some that said, well, well let's just, just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just do whatever we want. Let's sin to the full. Let grace abound. That's not what Paul was saying. And he chastises those folks very sternly. This was the position of a high school friend of mine that died 25 years ago, rather early. But that was his position, and even though I wasn't even a believer 50 years ago, when he said these things, it startled me. Even though I wasn't a Christian, it startled me when we were talking, and I don't know why we were talking about God and evidently about him accomplishing things and him being the provider of all things and him being the one that, that, that is the giver of faith. And it questioning my friend why he doesn't believe. Yeah, here's an unbeliever asking another unbeliever why he doesn't believe. But he said, God made me like this. It's his fault. Oh my, that startled my mind and, and stirred up my heart. Oh my, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't have any reason to imagine anything good as far as the end of my old friend. Our choices fall within the order of the causes, Augustine said. Our choices fall within the order of the causes, which is known for certain to God and is contained in his foreknowledge. For human choices are the causes of human acts. It follows that he who foreknew the causes of all things could not be unaware that our choices were among those causes which were foreknown as the causes of our acts. He might have been able to say that with half as many words, but nonetheless, he's saying that God knows our actions and, and he has included even our actions in the causes, the secondary causes in his providential care over all things, his providential ordaining of all things. This has been the case. The responsibility has been the case. The fact that we must do things even to fulfill God's promise, if I couldn't put it that way. We, we're called to do things. This has been from the beginning. 
in Genesis 2, 8 and 9, and Jehovah planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground, he didn't just leave it there, and out of the ground made Jehovah God to grow every tree that is good and pleasant to the sight and good for food. But he didn't just leave it that way. Oh, I'm putting you in this garden. Enjoy. Oh, we read later. And Jehovah God took the man and put him into the garden. Why? To dress it and to keep it. It's from the beginning. Our responsibility. It is God who makes things to grow for food. It is our responsibility to tend and keep the gardens. Man does not live by bread only, but he does live by bread. He is responsible to plant the wheat in order to have the bread. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered. We can spiritualize these things as well. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's true of wheat and every other good thing that grows in our gardens or in others' gardens. The implication here, of course, is that if Paul had not planted, if Apollos had not watered, there would be no increase. But Paul was given the responsibility to plant. Apollos was given the responsibility to water. And God granted the increase. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 127, except Jehovah build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except Jehovah keep the city. Except Jehovah keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. God keeps the city, but nonetheless, note that the psalmist does not say, he does not bid the builder to cease from laboring. He does not suggest that the watchman should neglect his duty of watching, nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Oh, I trust in God, I don't need to do anything. Just try sitting there with the garden and putting no seeds in and, walk, and not watering it and see how fast you get some corn or some wheat. We are not to abuse that trust, that promise. He supposes that they will do all they can to render second causes effectual. They have been directed to do these things. God says, I will provide. I will provide. And yet you do this and you do that. You have to go to work. You have to do this and that. And the next thing to maintain the house that I have given you. The Holy Spirit is not the patron of lazy and inert men. But he directs the minds of those who labor to the providence and power of God. We read in the Proverbs a number we read in Proverbs a number of the sayings of the writer of Proverbs to this effect regarding the slothful man, the sluggard, how that they're not going to have anything if they don't exert any effort, if they try to sit on their hands, if they stay in bed and sleep all day and so on. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread. But he that followeth after vain persons or things shall have poverty enough. Our true happiness is active dependence. Active dependence 
I think that sums it all up. It's dependence, but it's active. It's active dependence on God. But it's active. We're doing. We're doers. The blessing come, Charles Bridges has said, not by miracle to encourage sloth, but in the use of means to stimulate exertion. But the blessing comes, and it is of God. But he would have us to use our hands. He would have us to be active. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting. Looking at that, it just amazed me what is being said. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting. He went out to hunt. I guess we have a lot of hunters that are really lazy. But he went out to hunt. He actually gained some game. He actually slew some food, to put it that way. But he was too lazy to cook it. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took. Just lets it sit there and rot. While he sits there and rots, we could almost say. This man does not persevere. He only goes so far. He had that success in hunting, but he won't even, he's too lazy to cook that which he killed. His sloth evidently took over. The soul of the sluggard, we're told in other proverbs, desireth and hath nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. The soul of the sluggard desireth. But that's all he does is desire. Bernard of Clairvoy said simply, hell is full of good wishes or desires. Good wishes and desires aren't enough. You need to plant. You need to cook. You need to sow. You need to labor. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the winter. Therefore he shall beg and harvest and have nothing. The sluggard saith, there's a lion in the way, a lion in the street. Excuses, excuses, excuses. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too dry. It's too wet. There's a lion in the street. Always an excuse for doing nothing. How wonderfully grand we are at making excuses for our sloth. It put me in mind of those in Matthew 25. The five virgins that went to the five that had oil in their lamps and said, give us of your oil. Our lamps are going out. We're supposed to see to it that we have oil in our lamps. And when the five wise virgins, as they're called, went in, the door was shut. When the five foolish virgins came back, after having looked for oil, the door was shut and they couldn't get in. That's what's going to happen to the sluggard, to the slothful person, to the one that doesn't think he has to do anything. Sluggard is idle, comes from the word sloth, and idle, remiss, slothful, slack, dull, inactive, lazy, indolent, slow, numb, dormant, stupid. Those are some of the synonyms. David has brought this reality of these things, these things that need to be brought together, this act of obedience. When he said, for who is a God, in Psalm 18, who is a God, save Jehovah? 
And who is the rock besides our God, the God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect? He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. Listen, he teacheth my hands to war so that mine arms do bend a bow of brass. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation and thy right hand holdeth me up. Thy gentleness, gentleness hath made me great. Yes, God made a great warrior of David. Yet he is the rock. He provides the strength. He teaches even the art of war. He's David's shield. David is held up nonetheless by the right hand of God. God is David's strength. And the shield is high tower, as we've said. His rock. He can do nothing apart from his God. Still, he is called to fight. The good fight. Perhaps this sounds rather Pauline in your ears. David is saying that God prepares him to make war and gives him strength, yet it is only through the strength of God. And this is nothing less than what we've been saying, active dependence upon God, but active. And it finds a corollary with Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Does Paul not make perfect sense in his exhortation that sounds almost paradoxical? When he says, so then, my beloved, even as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What does he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work because I'm working. You work. You believe. You repent. You work. You come. You answer the call. But it's only because I work both in you to will and to work for my good pleasure. But you nonetheless are to do it. This is nothing less than active obedience. Active dependence upon God. Active dependence. The same thing that David was looking at here. He prayed. And we can presume that God told him. Reiterated perhaps the promise, the covenant promise. But he gave him, he built up his faith. He mobilized his faith. But David knew that it was in order that he mobilized his forces to bring forward the result that God's providence had designed. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank thee that thou art in control of all things, everything, nothing left out, even the sparrow, even every hair on our head. We thank thee and praise thee that thou art over all these things, that nothing happens outside of thy knowledge, nothing happens outside of thy will. And our Father, we thank thee even more that thou art our Father in heaven. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, thine only begotten Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand please for the benediction. From Isaiah 54, verse 10. Where God says to Isaiah, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but... My loving kindness shall not depart from thee, 
neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, saith Jehovah that hath mercy on thee. Amen.